Welcome to Shatter by Rockwell Automation Women in the Field. Hello, everyone. Haley Kelly here, your host for season four of the Shatter podcast. We're going to be doing something a little bit different today. The following podcast was actually hosted live at Rockwell Automation's Automation Fair. This panel was hosted by Control M Solutions, a partner of Plex by Rockwell Automation and hosted by Rockwell Automation. So in just a moment, you will hear from Hannah Miller, the co-lead of RA Wi-Fi, that's Rockwell Automation, Women in the Field. She is moderating the following panel. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Hannah Miller. I'm a global account manager and the current co-lead of Rockwell Automation, Women in the Field, one of Rockwell's many employee resource groups supporting women. We're excited to bring you this event, which was a highlight at our Rock Live event last year, to an even larger audience. So thank you all for being here. You've joined us because you're passionate about advancement of women in manufacturing and technology. You may be interested in learning how to advocate for yourself and others. And you want to feel connected to a community of like-minded people. Our goal is to bring that to you today. And our topic is twofold. How do we inspire women to join manufacturing? And how do we engage women to stay in manufacturing? A little stat for all of you. The US Department of Commerce said if women participated in the labor force at the same rate as men, 10.4 million more women would be in the labor force today. This could close the gap in manufacturing labor. Before we dive into our topic, let's meet our incredible panel. They will share insights and learnings from their personal lives and careers, tackle important questions for all of you to listen, um, and discuss strategies to advance opportunities for the next generation of women leaders. Patty, would you like to get us started? Absolutely, thank you, Hannah. My name is Patty Nowak. I'm the owner of Control M Solutions. We are a Rockwell Gold Level Systems Integrator that focuses solely on Flex ERP and MES implementations. I started my company 10 years ago and have experienced double digit growth each year. I'm up to 17 employees in three countries and uh, it's just been, been a pretty good run. I'm very excited about it. Uh, fun fact about me, I'm one of very few women who has a class M motorcycle license, so I like to relax by riding my motorcycle. <laughs> I Thank a you, fellow Patty. biker. <clears throat> John? Hi. Happy lunch. How's everybody doing? Let's hear some energy. Come on, come on, let's hear some energy. Thank you. So we got some big topics, we got some big things to talk about, so let's make sure we keep that energy going. I'm John Howard owner and managing director for JH2 Performance Group. I'm also president of manufacturing and industrials for the Black Rose Group. And I'm a senior advisor for Control M. Um, I've been doing distressed company turnarounds, supply chain and risk mitigation, Million Six Sigma certification from Greenbelt to Master Black Belt. Um, operations all my life, 
uh, electrical engineering background. Uh, fun fact, uh, Janelle and I went to school across the street from each other. We did. <laughs> years ago. Um, and I want to take one moment to uh, highlight this uh, wonderful person next to me. Uh, we met a number of years ago. And in the spirit of women in technology, she has been a beacon and uh, a phenomenal colleague. Um, I'm very proud to be here with you. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. Casey? Hi, everyone. <laughs> uh, Casey Jastrombowski. I work for Procter & Gamble. I've been there since 2009. I know there's a lot of P&G people in the room. Yeah, we like it. <laughs> Um, I've been there since 2009. I've split my time across baby and femcare. I'm currently a technical director for global femcare, uh, leading what we now call intelligent controls and automation. So for always in Tampax. And I also lead our digital foundations for our manufacturing sites. So all of the infrastructure and connectivity that we need to uh, really embark and grow our digital journey for femcare. A fun fact about myself as one thing I really like to do to relax is knit. Uh, in particular, I make baby sweaters. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what I like to do when I'm traveling and on the road, just to kind of unwind and, and relax a little bit. Thank you, Casey. Mina? My name is Mina Held. I've been working at Rockwell Automation since 2008. Um, currently, I'm working in our global sales and marketing organization and lead a team of technical experts that support um, the sales process for our customers. And um, gosh, fun fact, I started playing the guitar two years ago to help with my own balance. Um, the woman in my neighborhood that guides me on this asked me what my goals were, and it's truly just to do it with my nine-year-old son. I don't sing. So, um, <laughs> granted, I'm more enamored with that than he is, but having fun with it. <laughs> Thank you, Nina. And uh, last but not least, Janelle. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Dr. Janelle Catlin. I am the Vice President for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at FIRST, which is a youth-serving organization, a global robotics community. I am, yes. <laughs> I've been at FIRST for three years now. Um, my background is as a research scientist, a teacher educator, and an advocate for STEM for All. In terms of uh, what's a fun fact about me, I really love solo travel. And actually, I just celebrated my birthday last week. And as part of that solo travel that I love, um, I was in Jackson, Wyoming, and visited Yellowstone and Grand Teton. Love that. <laughs> Thank you, Janelle. So let's start on the subject of how we inspire women to careers in manufacturing and what challenges or roadblocks they might face that need to be addressed. Janelle, what strategies and initiatives have been proven effective in encouraging young women and girls to explore STEM fields and consider manufacturing as a viable career option? So I like to answer this question in two parts. Our work at FIRST in equity, diversity, and inclusion focuses on a multi-pronged strategy. And one of the pillars of that strategy is to engage youth where they are. So first, 
we need to go where the girls are. So how do we do that? Well, we partner with organizations that really focus on empowering girls and young women. So at first, we partner with the Girl Scouts. At first, we partner with Boys and Girls Clubs. And so that's our initial way to say, well, how can we reach where the students are? Because it's all about the opportunity. The second part of that is really around imagery. We know that when young girls see themselves and others engaging in STEM, engaging in FIRST Robotics, women having careers in STEM, when you can see it, you can achieve it. Mm -hmm. And so for us at first, what that means is making sure that we have authentic images of girls and young women, role models, in our social media posts, on our website, in the stories that we tell. We have an amazing campaign that we're running that we commenced earlier this year called People of Steam. Um, and it's essentially a spin off of the Humans of New York campaign, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. And in this People of Steam campaign, we highlight the voices of young girls in first, young women in first, um, young women and uh, adults in STEM, and giving voice to those who have been historically marginalized uh, in STEM careers. And so when we're able to highlight those stories, amplify those voices, it's an, an incredible way to inspire young girls. Thank you, Janelle. Mina, how can we address work-life balance concerns and family obligations that might influence women's decisions regarding choosing a career in manufacturing? Okay, it's a safe space, right? We can be honest. <laughs> I mean, everybody knows that's not easy. Um, I'm not gonna sit here and pretend it is. Uh, the, um, in my family, we're generally on the brink of insanity several times a week. Um, but, but it's doable and we can do hard things. So it is, I would say, something that I think through to help me make my choices both at home and at work is to reframe uh, why I work in terms of my values. So is it, what am I trying to do? Am I trying to support myself financially? Am I trying to support my family financially? Am I trying to impact the community, the country, the world? Am I trying to um, work collaboratively as a team to solve complex problems? And so when I keep that mindset, it helps me decide my priorities. And so that is one thing that I do. The other thing that's important for me at home is to remember, hey, that's truly a partnership at home. We can't control home either. And so letting that be a partnership, letting things, trusting your partner, if you are privileged to have one at home, um, and trusting your support system, whoever that may be, is an important part of the process. So to have the confidence that you can do it, to have the support system, all of those things are really important in whatever form and function they come in. Um, but I, I believe it's doable and very important to model for um, young ladies and our boys as well 
that, that we, can, we can do it. I think one thing that I would add to that too is, you know, we're all high-performing individuals, you know, lots of long days running around the sites and, you know, on our feet. And it's also okay just to let it go. You know what I mean? If, if it's not gonna be what you need, it's not part of those high priorities, like sometimes, and I know it's something I'm still practicing, but sometimes you just have to say, you know what, it is what it is and it's gonna be okay. 100%. Um, and it's okay to do that, too. Thank you both. Um, Casey, can you share personal experiences of encountering gender stereotypes and how they have influenced your career choice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So I think that, you know, when I first started working in particular, um, you know, you would go into the, the plants and the teams and I felt like I didn't really know what all I was trying to do and sometimes people were like, who sent her, you know what I mean? Um, and in particular, I was probably about three years into my career um, and I took a role in Asia for six months at one of our sites. And I will never forget that um, you know, we were validating the system and I was working with a peer of mine and we were splitting shifts and so we were doing two 12-hour shifts. And he had been leading it and then I took it over downstream as we got to the plant. And in the DDS meetings um, for the shift changes, everyone was like looking at him and he did such a good job of saying, no, Casey's leading it now, like go ask her, you know, go ask her. Of course, I was the only female on the team really in the site. Um, and, you know, there was something about that that just really gave me the power and the passion to make sure that I really knew, you know, how to answer all those questions and was the technical expert that they needed to lead that work and get that machine validated and into production. Um, and then, you know, fast forwarding a couple months, uh, we had a, a quality thing that we were working through that was stopping us from making shippable product. And I had been harvesting all of this data and figuring all these things out. Um, and so I said, you know what, I think I can fix this. So on the side, I started looking into it and uh, putting together some software that could, in fact, reject those products so that we could get into production. And, you know, when the time came in that shift change meeting, I was like, guys, I've got an idea. Um, and we put the software in place and implemented it, and we were able to get that line into production uh, shortly thereafter. And then at the end of the six months, they were like, well, you can't leave. Like, you know, so I think you see that, you know, that change as you dive into your technical capabilities and build your technical confidence and you know, show that to your peers. Um, and for me, from a career standpoint, that's continued to kind of fuel my technical passion. And I love really understanding the technology and how we can use the technology to um, improve you know, both our machines and their capabilities and uh, the needs for you know, our operations and users of them. The one thing that I'll add to that is, you know, having been in the manufacturing space for longer, we need to do something to advocate for those that are joining us newly. Um, because I, I can tell you, I think if we all remember back, it took us a little bit to find our voice uh, and to um, stand up for things ourselves and when people have said something incorrectly or, or something stereotypical, um, I think it's important that we advocate for the young women around us to help them find their voice, whether that be right there in the moment or to work with them separately to give them some guidance on how they can handle it because why not let them get there faster? Thank you both. John, we've talked about early career exposure for women around STEM programs. How can we support mid-career women and inspire them to shift 
to enter manufacturing roles? So kind of twofold. For me, you know, I've always been an advocate of co-op and summer internships uh, to get young women and uh, young adults interested and uh, aligned with STEM-related, engineering-related uh, careers. Um, that's done a lot. It helps to take that theory and connect with the practicum. It also gives a great opportunity to get inside of these facilities and these working spaces so, so that they understand what is required uh, to be successful and to be the best. I say mid-career, um, I mentor some folks and one of the things I'm saying is get ahead of the emerging technologies. Be the best, you have to put in the work. Widen the gap between you and your, and your peer group and put your hierarchy in a position to have to deal with you because you are the best. You are the best in the room, best around the table and uh, unequivocally you know, prepared for anything that uh, uh, within your job responsibilities. Also have a, have a plan, have a pathway. Target some position somewhere that you want to be in some time frame. So I know you guys have heard and are already working in career pathing, but um, uh, find the biggest challenge, find the biggest problem that no one has been able to solve. And like Casey said, uh, she just articulated very well how uh, she was able to provide a solution. And then that was a part of her performance brand. So now people have to come to you. You are the subject matter expert. So put in the work, widen the gap, and find the big challenges to go out and solve and show everyone that uh, you are the best. John, I think you were very good to me when we first met and helping inspire the idea of a personal brand. And I think especially women who are in the middle of their careers, they've had their babies, babies are maybe in school, your focus changes. I'm not saying that your children are any less important, but your focus changes, and when it does, if you think about your brand and you make your brand, you become your brand. And what John has taught me, I think two phrases that I use all the time, which is everything counts and do the work. And I think that made me improve my personal brand and can do the same thing for you. Thank you both. Patty, what do you wish someone had told you as a young woman entering the manufacturing field? So it's an interesting question because it does, uh, it does sort of imply some, some regret. But I've had a very fortunate career, but I, I do wish I could go back in time and give myself a few pieces of advice, which is, number one, imposter syndrome is real, and you don't have to become a victim of it. Um, if, if you work hard and you do widen that gap, you probably do deserve whatever you get. And you shouldn't say, oh, it was just an accident or just some sort of bump in the road or because somebody liked me better than they liked that other person. Um, so I've always been a really hard worker. I never, I never knew that as a woman, I never knew there were things I couldn't do. I never felt like there was a woman's path and a man's path. And I think I, think I owe a lot of that to my father who always pushed me to, to work hard and my mother who always said, whatever you're going to do, just be the best at that thing. And uh, I don't care what you do. You can be you know, a garbage man, a librarian, you can run a company, I don't care, just be the best. And I think with that encouragement, it, it helped. And I ended up getting my start in the world's second oldest profession, accounting. 
and uh, <laughs> there were not as many opportunities for that back in the 80s uh, for women as, as there was in IT. So I got into IT because it was an opportunity that was really genderless. And once I found that out, I, I really soared and had a great time with it and, and dove into it. So I would say take chances, be courageous, and remember when you work hard, you deserve the, the benefits that you get. Thank you, Patty. So hopefully by um, normalizing conversations around the, these topics and bringing these topics to um, larger and larger audiences, by this point we've inspired um, at least some of those 10.4 million women to join manufacturing. So let's turn our attention to how we engage the women who are here in manufacturing and technology roles to keep them in the industry. Patty, I have another one for you. Gender bias is a large contributor to women leaving manufacturing. In your career, please share an example of where you experienced bias and how that impacted you. For example, if that bias was pay or title related, what strategies or resources would you recommend for women in manufacturing who are negotiating salaries, seeking promotions, or advocating for pay equity within their organizations? I'm glad you asked that question because uh, I have a story that I, I love to share. Uh, and it didn't for a long time because I, I didn't think it was interesting. And as I tell it, people, people say, wow, that's you know, it's very inspiring. In the early 90s, I was working for an electronics company and I co-managed uh, IT. I did this hardware and my partner Jeff did the software side. And Jeff and I started at the company in the same week. We were about the same age. We had about the same education and we had about the same number of years of experience. And uh, we really got along great. And it was a wonderful co-managing of, of the department. Well, one day I was asked to do a project that exposed me to everybody's salary within the company. Now, those of you who are in IT or even HR understand that you see people's wages all the time. And you become immune to them because it's not your business. They don't do the same thing as you do. It's not comparable. But when I saw Jeff's wages as a single mom in the early 90s were $10,000 a year more than mine, and we were basically equal, it sort of stuck with me. So I went into my boss's office after the project was done, and I sat down. I was very calm with him. I said, Dave, I gotta ask you a question. You had to know that I was gonna see everybody's salary when I did this project. Yep. I said, I've gotta know why Jeff makes $10,000 a year more than me. Same education, same experience, same longevity with the company. The only thing I can think of is because I'm a woman. But your wife is a professional. So that just doesn't pass the sniff test. So tell you what, the why doesn't matter. I'm gonna need a $10,000 raise today. And he said, give me an hour. So I went back in an hour and he said, you know, Patty, I've thought long and hard about what you said, and I want to make things right. So I'm going to give you a $5,000 raise today. And I said, wow, man, thanks for playing the game. I really like it, but I'm going to need all 10. And he said, I don't have the authority to give you a $10,000 raise. So I said, well, well, who does? He said, the president of the company, Stan. All right, let's go see Stan. I'm sure he doesn't, he would, you know, he's a good guy. He doesn't want to see this inequity. He said, give me an hour. And I went back in, and I got a $10,000 raise that day. 
And as a single mom, that money really changed my life. The interesting thing is that's not even close to the best part of the story. Uh, Dave and I were uh, in a social engagement together. Uh, our kids went to school together. so. And I said to him when we had a minute alone, I said, Dave, what the heck was that? I mean, wh why did you do this? Why did you give me $10,000 a year less than Jeff? And he said, well, Patty, I'm going to tell you something that's going to be hard to hear. I offered him the same amount of money as I offered you. You took it. He didn't. He knew his worth. You did not know your worth. And I left thinking, man, oh man, I'm my own worst enemy. And that was 1993, so 30 years ago. Um, and so as a young woman, I learned very early on that if you're unemotional and approach things in a fair and equitable manner, you will be treated fairly and equitably. And it, it led me to come to the conclusion that whenever I hear a woman say, I have to work harder than a man to get ahead, I like to tell him this, every man that got ahead had to work harder than the men around him. So as John said earlier, widen the gap, be the best. The better you are at what you do, the harder it is for anybody to hold you back. Yeah. She's not talking in 10,000 increments anymore. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that personal story. John, yes. so let's move from bias to talking about allyship. Okay. How can men in technical fields actively support and promote women as role models and leaders in the industry? Uh, so let's say first you have to, you have to be credible and reputable. That's number one. Uh, no one's going to seek you out if you're not credible and have a brand of performance and a history of influence. Uh, allyship is not being a savior. Women are already wearing capes, so we, they don't need that. Um, I think to leverage part of Patty's story, you know, I've been in the position as an ally in meetings where there was no representation. And she's right. We were doing recruiting, and I'm looking at a pool of resources, and it's not very diverse. So I know Janelle will certainly uh, acknowledge. Let's go back to and find a pool of resources that reflects the organization we're trying to put together. And if we're talking high performance and high potential, that's people that don't look the same. That's different genders, that's different ethnic backgrounds. So be an ally. Stop those paradigms and stop those practices when you're in those rooms where you are the advocate. Also, in terms of being a mentor and an ally, particularly for men, uh, I like to say that some of the folks that I've worked with in the past that have looked to me for influence, you have to you know, put in the work. You have to understand that allies may try to exploit you. Allies may try to fraternize. Allies, again, you would hope would have your best interest in terms of uh, supporting your career. So for the men in the room, I'm very happy to see that you signed up for the luncheon. Being an ally is, is certainly uh, a very responsible advocacy for us. But again, don't try to be a savior. Be an enabler and make sure that you don't start what you can't sustain. I'm glad to hear you say that, John, because in, in my life, 
the mentors that I've had that have improved my life the most have been men who took the time out uh, in the you know 80s and 90s to say, look, you you can do this. You've got the chops. Right. Let me just coach you. And if you're open to coaching, it really works. I've seen John. I've seen John work with many people in his career, and I love the way that with uh, you, you treat women very much the same that you treat men. You maybe have a little bit different approach, but I don't think you're ever soft on me when we. John's a performance coach for my company. I don't think you're you're ever soft on me. You make me work hard, and I think you've, I've seen you do that for every woman, and I think every woman who works for you is better for it. I appreciate that. Uh, I think also listening is important. Mm -hmm. A lot of times uh, in a position of being an ally or a mentor, we think we are, you know, the expert. Uh, we try to force solutions on folks. I think it's important in that role to listen. Have them play back what they experience. Have them translate, you know, what type of uh, uh, situation they were in that requires support. Uh, for young engineers, uh, working in a manufacturing facility and you walk through the plant and men act like they've never seen a woman before. I mean, that could be traumatic. That uh, can be an experience and I think some of the flight that we have with folks, with young women engineers out of manufacturing is because of that type of ignorance and, and those kind of paradigms. Um, so when I have a team meeting or an organizational meeting, I'm talking about you know, are you living the mission, the mission, vision, and values of your company? How you treat people, being kind, being considered, being professional. Um, you know, you have daughters their age. You don't want people at your wife's job to be, you know, handling them that way. So as an ally, make sure, uh, in my opinion, uh, make sure that you uh, treat people the way you want to be treated and support people the, the way you want them to support those folks uh, that you love in your life. So... Yeah, so one of the things that I will add, allyship is why I'm still here. So I've been working in manufacturing for 15 years now, um, but my strongest allyship is outside of my office. Uh, it's my husband. I mean, it's, we're getting messages all day long from the community, from our mentors, our guides, our children are getting messages from their teachers, their friends. Um, having allyship, outside that gives you that extra, you can do this, we can make this work. Um, you know, at times when I needed to lean into my career, my husband knew if I was off the grid at five o'clock, he left without talking to me to go pick up our kids at daycare. Hmm. Like these are, these are forms of allyship that make it possible to balance um, the obligations. So that kind of allyship is critical, has been for me. Perfect. And I would just like to add, and beautifully stated, Nina, I am still here because of allyship. Um, so John talked about earlier how we went to school across the street from one another. Mm -hmm. um, I am a proud graduate of Bennett College for Women, a historically black women's college in Greensboro, North Carolina. And when I was at Bennett, I was in what I would call a safe space. Um, it was an all women's college. Not all of my uh, faculty members were women. Um, I had amazing faculty members who were also men. And having those professors believe in me, support me, 
um, during challenging times, whether it was personal or maybe just struggling in organic chemistry. <laughs> um, having that support was so key. I also want to say that the term ally is not a term that one bestows upon themselves, but one that rather the folks that you're helping bestow upon you. Uh, being an ally is a self-reflective practice. It is a humbling experience. And, and John talked about just this idea of men really being able to listen to women, um, to listen to whom you're trying to help, and also to be aware of your own bias, because we all have it. Um, and so to humble yourself to say, hey, am I treating this particular colleague fairly? Am I treating this particular colleague fairly? Um, and so just being mindful of our interactions with folks, with our colleagues, being mindful of how we are celebrating, um, giving promotions, giving raises, all of those kinds of things. Um, and even in the spaces where we think those small interactions that you can just kind of brush away we, you know, we call those microaggressions, they build up. And so to be able to call it out when you see it and say, hey, this can't happen here, because in one moment, it can change someone's life when you allow, uh, when you stop to allow negative things to happen. Yeah, and if I could build on that for a second, I mean, you have to have courage. Mm -hmm. Courage and commitment. Uh, about doing the right thing. You know, I've been in several situations where, you know, I can see body language and, and know that there's a threat or something going on that's not right. Um, and you just have to be very sensitive, very careful about how to, to manage that. But it takes a lot of courage. And you need to be there uh, when people expect you to be there. Don't disappear, don't flash and fizzle. Um, and, and uh, you know, don't start what you can't sustain, but be committed, have courage. I love the dialogue, thank you. So speaking of the importance of interpersonal relationships and developing one like allyship, let's also talk about mentorship. So in Janelle, in your professional career, can you share with us a great experience you've had with a mentor mm -hmm. and how mentorship has helped you in your career or an experience as a mentor and what you learned from that experience. Thank you. Um, I will share uh, being a mentee <laughs> and what that has been. Um, I know that I have been fortunate enough to have amazing mentors. I know that. Um, I would not be here today if it weren't for the folks who helped me along my career. I mean, that is just plain and simple. Um, I've been fortunate to have amazing mentors, some who look like me and some who don't look like me. And it's when I think about the theme in terms of what really matters, what really matters is that those folks believed in me. Uh, they believed in uh, me to be able to do whatever it was that I was doing at that particular moment. So whether I was in undergraduate school or graduate school or doing an internship or working as a research scientist, um, whatever I was exploring at that time, 
those mentors believed in me. I will share briefly a story of um, my time as a research scientist over 20 years ago. And I had a mentor who was my boss, uh, but he was my mentor. And every day that I would come into the lab, he would say to me, Janelle, what is your plan? Now I tell you, every single day he would ask me, Janelle, what is your plan? And it became a joke, right? I would literally go home and like talk to my family and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's you know, asking me every single day, what is my plan, what is my plan? Um, it wasn't until years later that I really thought back upon that time in the laboratory. Um, I, it makes me get emotional when I think about it today. In that moment, he was giving me the space, in a privileged space, to be powerful. That's what he was doing. So him asking me, Janelle, what is your plan? And allowing me at a multi-million dollar pharmaceutical company to come into that laboratory every single day and dictate what my plan was going to be was life-changing. And I didn't realize it in my early 20s, what he was doing in that moment. It was years later, but I tell you, it changed my life. And when I interact with folks and I think about uh, the teams that I lead, am I ensuring that the folks on those teams are able to create their own plans and have power in a privileged space? And so that's my experience. I love that because it's we we often think mentorship is in an office or a room one on one, but it also looks like you know in our day to day intrinsically in what we do that that's something that impacts us in what we do. You know, I have one that I would add to that. You know, we talk about women staying in manufacturing, and I think uh, one of the times that can be hard is if you're you know going through the journey of of becoming a mom. And you know, being on the floor and being pregnant, and it's fun. We'll call it that. <laughs> and uh, for me, I was uh, working on a project in our plant in Canada when I was having my first child. Um, I was traveling back and forth until I was about 37 weeks pregnant. Now that was partially my fault. That wasn't because anyone was making me do that. But um, anyways, you know, trying to get this line up and in production. And I'm thinking, what in the world am I going to do? Like, I'm going to have this baby next and then what, right? Um, and a, a male coworker who I consider a friend and an ally and a mentor um, basically voluntold me to take over manufacturing cybersecurity for Global Femcare. Um, which frankly, I, I didn't feel like I was fully qualified to do, but I knew that if I did it, my job wasn't gonna be in Canada anymore while my child was in Cincinnati. So I said, yeah, sure, let's go for it. Um, and he took the time to mentor and coach and make sure that I had the skills that I needed to be successful in that role. And it was really for me, for where I was in my career and my personal life, something that enabled me to you know, continue working with the plants in, in a way that I love to do and also you know, not be physically traveling back and forth to the plants with a new baby at home. So I think another thing to keep in mind is that you know, mentors come in all different forms um, and you know, really kind of using them to understand you know, things that help meet your priorities and needs can also be something that we should keep in mind. Yeah, not only in all different forms, but for different lengths of time, yeah, right? Sure. They can come in a flash, they can come for long periods of time, um, similar to your story, traveling, coming back from maternity leave from my first, I was forced into a trip, 
by somebody who didn't understand what my transition was like. And so forced into a trip and happened to talk to one of my women leaders in the meeting when I got there. So I just had to have an authentic moment. It was hard for me. So, so basically, it's, what do you do? I know you have kids too, like this is crazy. Uh, and she gave me some perspective. Like it was literally 10 minutes, but it was what I needed to hear at the right time. And that I think is mentorship too. Janelle, if I might, I'd like to um, sort of jump off on your point of something that at the time seemed not important, how to plan your day. Um, probably when I was maybe in my late 20s, I worked with a man who told me, you can never give anything away. And I didn't, he was one of these very short mentorships, right? Mm. And I always remembered that. He said, everything you give away will come back to you in multiples. Mm. And I think that looking back, that has been a good part of the success of my company because we offer free training, free advice, free help, because I know someday the universe is going to give that back to me. And I didn't at the time realize it, but now I realize that has actually been a major factor in my success. So to those of you out there who are hearing little statements that might not feel like they're meaningful, think about it and see how you can apply it to your life. It could change your life. Yeah, so I'm... Um old school. So I had a mentor back in General Motors. And at the time, you know, mentors, you kind of didn't work in their hierarchy. It's kind of a conflict of sorts that my mentor is also my plant manager, for instance, and I was a first line supervisor. So he punted me to somebody else that he trusted that I didn't know. And uh, developing that relationship with that person was uh, pretty phenomenal because they put me to work. Uh, they taught me how to be a mentor. So now my mentees really don't like me because I do, no, I do none of the work. They have to bring me their plan. What did you do in between the last time we talked? Why are we talking now if you didn't do anything since the last time we talked? Um, so now I think I'm a more effective mentor uh, to help people uh, to synthesize what we're talking about into action. Um, also, to be able to help them, you know, open doors and have some influence somewhere uh, within their career or where they're trying to go. But in doing that, again, and I know I've said this too many times already, you have to put in the work. Because if you don't put in the work, you haven't shown me that you are more committed to your pathway than I am as your mentor. Because it can't be my plan. It's got to be your plan. So uh, mid-career had a mentor at Amazon and uh, that helped me to understand, you know, more of a global perspective of uh, how to manage an enterprise. And even now, uh, one of my mentors uh, is uh, an ex-governor. Uh, so been blessed and highly favored to be in the right places at the right time, putting in work with phenomenal people. And it's, it's very true. Surround yourself with people smarter than you. Mm -hmm so that you could become better, and then you change the room, keep moving to different rooms. And to that point, mentorship that lasts for a longer period of time, it goes both ways. Yeah. Uh, the value has to be achieved by both parties. Um, you know, you can't, it's not gonna last if it's one-sided. And so there has to be a certain chemistry about it that, um, that both parties get value from, whether that's just what is the voice of the uh, grassroots voice, or you know, what is it really like in leadership? Like it could peer, my best mentors are peer mentors because they're safe spaces. 
So it isn't just hierarchical. Peer mentors are so important because you're ready to ask them the stupid questions because you know they're going through the same problems as you. So I, you know, mentorship comes in so many forms. Thank you all. Um, in addition to leaning on our allies and creating mentorships and leaning on those relationships, I want to ask Casey about how we can work with our peers. So day to day, how can women support each other and advocate for their peers? What specific actions can women take to help advance their peers? Yeah, so I think there's um, two things that come to my mind. Um, the first is, you know, the power of the team and the power of the group is something we shouldn't, you know, leave behind. Um, actually, I know that, you know, P&G is doing an event at Gillette on Thursday for all the women in this industry uh, to get together and, and have some time, and people are ecstatic about it, myself included. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> thanks for hosting us. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, like, we, we did something at one of our other things, and, you know, just creating those networks, finding those people, having those conversations, um, I think is really something that we shouldn't lose and we shouldn't forget. Um, the second one to me is to be genuine in yourself and where you are and what that means. Um, we all have a lot on our plates. I have a six and a four year old and you know, they've got strep throat and they've got all the things and you know, just, hey look, like I'm trying to be the best I can be but I gotta pick them up. And I see that from my boss who happens to be female as well. She does a great job of you know, setting an example of you know, we are people and we have lives and, um, you know, we're here to get our job done and we're committed to getting our job done. But sometimes that's not as uh, old school as it used to be that, you know, you have to work from seven to five or whatever that means, right? Um, so I think that, you know, we can commit ourselves in today's world to having both a career and having a family. And sometimes that takes transparency um, and it also takes maybe a little creativity. Um, but, you know, we don't have to pick one or the other, but I think that together as women we can empower each other to be on that journey and, you know, to understand what that means and it might be very different at different stages of our lives and our careers. Yeah, it's okay to be messy, yeah. right? Or messy, we're messy people. Or leave your kid at school for an hour until you get there to pick them up. It's fine. You can leave less. <laughs> <laughs> haven't done that, but. Thank you, Casey. Um, Mina. How do we move towards making representation and inclusion of women an intrinsic part of the business culture, where it is seamless and not a separate action or activity? Yeah, I love this. Um, it's something that's been on my mind for a while. A lot of what we do when we do STEM outreach or um, even at work when we're trying to support each other, we bring all the women together separately. Like, we go talk to all the girls, or we have our ERGs that are largely women. Okay, safe space, there's a value in that safe space. But my dream is that we get to a place where we're talking about it and having an impact in, in an environment that's reflective of the one that's our reality, yeah. and reflective that's the one that is the one that we work in, you know? That it's important to read you know, the books that, that like show women in STEM fields to our boys, our young boys, because they shouldn't be normalized that it's okay to see that, like that will happen. They can, they can see that and support that. Um, and so even when we go in the professional work, like well, sometimes we have these leadership programs where we'll just bring women, but I, I, want, I want for us to be enabled 
you know, in the same way, you know? And so for our male counterparts to see us in those spaces and hear our voices in those spaces. So I guess I, I hope that we can be more mindful of making it more intrinsic in what we do every day as opposed to something we do on the side. Hello, uh, this is for Dr. Janelle. You mentioned that you love solo travel and you mentioned a couple national parks you just went to for your birthday. I personally love going to the national parks. I'm hoping to visit Acadia soon. Um, do you have any advice as a woman who is brave enough to go out into the wilds? Um, I'm sure you've gone to a lot of places across the country. Do you have any advice about how you have found safe ways to travel to these national parks or what you've done to gain the confidence to know that you're going to be okay in doing so? Well, thank you for that question, and I love the question. Um, so in my early 30s, um, and I, so I'm single, no kids. And I think oftentimes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think oftentimes for women uh, who make that choice or it's by chance, um, that we have a, a, our own story to tell. Um, we oftentimes may be seen as different, <laughs> um, or we may oftentimes be seen as not being able to say when we need the self-care because we don't have the quote unquote other responsibilities that maybe some folks may have if they have a partner or if they have children. And so self-care is important. So let's just start with that. Planning is very important. <laughs> so planning for these trips, um, I do a lot of research before I do solo travel. Um, I've done solo travel to Asia. Um, I remember the very first time I went to China, I was like, oh my goodness, why am I doing this? <laughs> Once I actually got on the plane, um, and then I realized, you know, you have to be brave. You have to be bold, and you have to live your life. Um, and so my, my advice or my, my tips <laughs> around that, focus on planning, and then just going and being brave and living your life. Thank you, Janelle. Any other questions from our audience? Um, I'm not going to direct this to a specific person, but uh, for myself, I found that being in the middle of my career, when I started out, I was, you know, you, you end up being one of the guys to get along. And I think it's kind of like what you're saying, you're a little bit different from everyone else. And it's, I think it's getting better, but almost, do you ever feel like you're being left behind or the world is changing and you're trying not to fall into that other girl syndrome or that you, you want to be able to advocate for women entering the field, but you've learned the wrong lessons? I mean, has anyone? Yeah, I mean, what you're saying resonates because I can tell you, having been in the field a little bit longer, I, my experiences and my coping mechanisms have been different from the women that have entered after me. And so it took me a minute to realize it because just like you, um, I coped 
by becoming one of the guys, and that was I worked for me, you know, to the point where I couldn't even tell you that I wasn't being myself. It felt okay at that time, um, and so, but but it's not like that now because there's more space, and that's great. That's good. Like that's good that it's getting a little better, and there's more space. And people are able to be more authentic and true to themselves and not have to find those coping mechanisms, and that's okay. So it was a little eye-opening for me to interact with other women and not feel a commonality in the experience. You know, like I had somebody tell me, hey, I never cut cake. Like, if there's cake in the office, I, I never, I go hide. Like, I'm not the one that's going to cut that cake. Like, I'm not serving the cake. But there are others like, okay, but, but I'm, I'm, I, I, that makes me feel good. Like, I like helping people have treats. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's just different. And so I, it took me a minute to realize that there's, a, a, there's like a variety in the experience. And so I guess what you're saying does resonate with me. I agree with you too. I did the same thing when I was coming up. I was always one of the guys as much as I could be. And, and for me, it worked out pretty well. Because at the time, it was a little, I'm a little bit older than everyone else on the panel here. And, um, it was a little bit of a different world, and it's a, it's a better world now. It's not where it needs to be, but, it, but it's getting there. And I think some of that has to do with the point you made earlier about showing our boys, to teaching them to show respect to, to their spouses and to their mothers and to their sisters. I mean, it's, it's very important. I, one of my favorite stories is uh, my son and his wife moved from Florida to Wisconsin. And his wife is a very successful... <laughs> his, his wife is a very successful career woman and so they had to in a two-week span close their house uh, sell, sell their house empty it move it pack everything up move into our house temporarily while they waited a few days get the kid out of daycare all these things that have to happen when you're moving and one of them had a business trip to Hawaii the week before they moved and uh, gosh, was that difficult, right? So my son had to close the house, turn the car lease in, take the kid out of school, move into our house, get there till the day before, go pick up his wife from the airport, and he did it all while she was working in Hawaii. And I told him that I was, she felt bad. She said, I, gosh, I feel so bad doing this. I said, why? You're super successful. And I told him how very proud I was of him for making his wife the path to be successful. And I have to admit, I was part of the problem. You know, I was a maintenance supervisor, and we had uh, several uh, female maintenance technicians and millwrights, and we would give them job assignments so that they could prove that they were part of the team. So it's evolved, like you said, it's evolved. Uh, it's not where it needs to be. We're still, uh, we're a long way away from where we need to be where we don't have to talk about safe spaces. Because, you know, equity, that, that bothers me a lot that people can be in places where they can't express themselves or be, you know, seen as valuable as a part of the team. Um, yeah, so that, that bothers me a lot. So as an ally, gentlemen, when you're in that position, make sure that you have professional empathy and compassion, and again, listen and make sure people are seen and acknowledged so that they can perform their best. But uh, they have to have separate 
safe spaces for people to communicate them, uh, to communicate what they think, and then go back to another environment and take on another face is ridiculous. Thank you. Um, and thank you all for joining us here today. How about a big round of applause for our panelists? We hope you've learned something new, maybe met a uh, new ally or a future mentor. So thank you all. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you all.